0: Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Shema podcast. You know, I've always seen one of my roles at the Torch organization was to serve as a boot camp for the outreach rabbis. I think back when I first began learning with Rabbi Yochoff-Wolby, not too long after he joined the organization, probably one of his first one-on-one students. And the reason I serve in the functionality of being part of the Torch Boot Camp is because if a rabbi can teach and change and form me, then they can teach anyone. When it comes to teaching Torah, it's not about conveying intellectual ideas to the recipient. It's about helping the recipient, the student, take those ideas, those ideas of Torah the way they were intended to, And use those ideas to transform the person, make them anew, someone that is now formed more closely and aligned with that of their creator and more connected with him. So my idea is that if a rabbi can change me and mold me, then they can teach anyone. You know, many of you have reached out to me and we've shared the challenges of recognizing how so little we know when we begin our studies. It seems overwhelming. But does it even make sense that we have expectations that it should be easy? I mean, we are talking about taking on the highest responsibility in God's creation at being part of the Jewish people as his co-creators. Of course, it's going to be tough. And for those of us who were not born into such an environment where we're learning to adapt and change our lifestyle at a later period in life, then yes, it's going to be more challenging, but it also means that we have more merit in our progression and in our efforts. But what I want to convey to you, my friends, is that everyone I've spoken with, and I'm sure even those of you who I've not spoken with, are already light years ahead of me as a vessel to receive and transform yourselves through the learning of Torah. I have often on this podcast share with you some really Embarrassing, humiliating stories about myself. You may wonder why I do such a thing. I mean, I think the biggest one was when I did the episode with Rabbi Cohen on the Holy Briss. The reason I'm willing to do this is for one reason, and that is because I want any Jew listening who may be thinking in their back of their mind, but I can't learn, I can't change. I want them to all be able to listen to my podcast and say, oh, wow, if this guy, Dan Coleman, did it, then yeah, I can do it too. When I think about where I come from and recognize where I probably still am today at very lowly levels, and I contemplate it, it gives me a lot more kavanah when I say "mode ani in the morning. I'm going to share with you some more embarrassing stories. My vocabulary used to be filled with such vulgar language, and I did not even consider it. To me, the F word In all its derivations as a noun, verb, adjective, and adverb were no different than any other word. I just thought saying something like, I'm very excited was not nearly as enthusiastic as saying, I am effing excited. When I finally came to the recognition that as a Jew, we are God's ambassadors in the world. We are his emissaries. And how important it is to present ourselves in a way that we should in that lofty position. When I recognized that, I felt so horrible to understand how I was speaking. And when I worked to remove this vulgar language out of my vocabulary, my vocabulary literally probably shrank by 25, 30 percent. It was very hard to change. It was such, it was so habitual to speak in such a crude and vulgar way. And I was looking for a way to always keep myself present and conscious of the fact that I am in the creator's presence at all times. And I'm going to have to do a review of my life with my creator when I pass. And my neshama does it every single night when it leaves my body when I'm sleeping. And so I thought, what is a way I could stay present, be aware of this at all times and the idea ahead was that of learning and saying the Asher Yatzar prayer every time I go to the restroom. For someone like me, whose three food groups are comprised of coffee, scotch, and cigars, it requires one to drink a lot of water during the day to stay hydrated. So I thought to myself, because I have to make some frequent trips to the restroom, it will cause me to have to make frequent Bracca's contemplating the idea, the delicacy of the human body, how at the cellular level, everything has to be working in such precision. And at any moment, the Almighty can make something not work correctly and we can get sick or worse. But I'll tell you one of the things that happened to me that really allowed me to begin to change my behavior. It was really just a year and a half ago. It was at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And when I first began hearing about this, my initial reaction was fear. We didn't know much about it. A lot of us were thinking it was, you You get this virus and death ensues for all. And I was in such a state of fear over it. But then I quickly realized, how in the world can I be afraid of a virus? Who controls whether someone gets sick? It's the Almighty. Who controls whether someone lives or dies? It's the Almighty. And I realized right then and there, I have to take this experience And use it to make sure that I fear Hashem more than I fear anything else. Because in the end, he is the only one that controls everything. And shortly after gaining this understanding, of course, I quickly came across a lecture where the rabbi was explaining that the word yarmulke is Aramaic for fear of the king. And I thought to myself, wow, that's the reason Jews cover their heads to remind them of what I wanted to be reminded of, that the only thing to fear is God. It's to fear Hashem, and that is it alone. He is the only power. And I began to wear my yarmulke. Now, up to that point, I was wearing my yarmulke on Shabbos. When I drove to this community, when I was living in the suburbs, and I would drive to this community and be with other Jews, but outside of that, I didn't want to draw attention to myself as being a Jew. And then a question just dropped into my mind. And it was, Dan, why don't you wear sitzitskatan? And I thought to myself, as I had some in the closet, and I answered to myself, the reason I don't wear them is because I bought them too big. They're bulky. They They look all bulky and clunky under my clothing. My clothing doesn't fit right. That's why I don't wear them. And they're thick and they're hot. And then the question came in again, Dan, why don't you wear your seat seats katan? And I gave the same answer. I got the question again. And finally, I answered it correctly, which was because my Yetzirah said that they're too bulky and too hot. And then I realized how clever the Yetzirah is. So I immediately went online and ordered some seat seats. And by the end of that week, when they arrived, I was wearing my seat seats katan, the seat seats we wear throughout the day, and my yarmulke. Everywhere I went, I've worn them every day since. From the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. And I will tell you why that has been so transformative for me. For one, since I conduct so much of my business on online calls, way before the pandemic, when Zoom became the norm, this is the way I live my life. And I found that once I started to wear my yarmulke, and I would look into the screen at the other party, and I would see myself... Wearing a yarmulke, presenting myself as a Jew, as an ambassador, emissary of God and the Jewish people, I realized how it made me so cognizant of how I presented myself and what I said. Even before I moved to the community, when I was living up in a suburb of Houston, where there's no Torah observant, a.k.a. Orthodox Jews roaming around wearing yarmulkes and wearing seat seats, what I learned or what I realized was that I started being more present as I interacted with others, because I knew now that I was visibly representing something. I was representing the Almighty. I was representing the Torah, and I was representing my fellow Jews. Now that I've been living in a community and I've gotten to know these people, now when I'm out and about, I even take it more seriously because I know that I'm representing them too. I know when I go out to run an errand, I can't be internal thinking about something from work I need to be present. I need to make sure when I'm walking to the grocery store that I'm observing of what's around me, that if there's an elderly person or someone struggling to, to get something heavy out of their grocery cart, that I need to run over there and assist them. I know that I need to be smiling, acknowledging people and saying, hello, how are you? As they're checking me out, saying thank you, being gracious, conducting myself in the best way possible to represent These amazing people here, the Torah, and the most importantly, to represent God and what we represent to the rest of the world. I wanted to delve into more of these concepts, the things we wear, the tzitzitz, the yarmulke, the tefillin. And so I asked my new rabbi, Rabbi Abrahams, the rabbi I've been studying with for, I would guess, probably four or five months now, serving my role once again at the Torch organization for being the boot camp to new Torch outreach rabbis. And he has flown past my rigorous boot camp experience and is flourishing and doing so many great things and helping out so many of my brothers learn Torah. And we're going to explore some amazing concepts, amazing ideas that bring some clarity and some gravity to how we present ourselves in an exterior way that are there to influence our internal world and change our perspective and who we are. Before I bring on Rabbi Abrahams, I want to share with you an amazing story that Rabbi Jacobian told me last week. He said when he was studying at Yeshiva with his rabbi, Rabbi Abadi, that I believe I'm telling this correct, but I'll get the the gist of the story to you. But someone came into the office and said that there was a woman inquiring and asking for recommendation on a book to learn halakha. And Rabbi Abadi looked perplexed and said, I never have heard of a book that will teach someone halakha. I never heard of such a thing. And Rabbi Jacobian told me he was, he was perplexed. And the, the woman said, no, like the Shekona Rukh or some other text on halakha. And he responded again, I, I did not know you could learn halakha from that book. And this conversation went on until finally Rabbi Abadi said, The only way I know of, I've ever heard of, that one can learn halakha is through a rabbi. Those books you referenced are simply there to to create questions for the Jew to ask the rabbi. This is such a powerful story because there's so much truth to it. It's the reason we created the Torch Plus program. As many of you as listeners Your entree in the Torah was from like Rabbi Yokoff Wolby's, Rabbi Ari Wolby's podcast, Rabbi Chaim Busko's videos and podcast. But the fact is, is that we all need a rabbi. I know from personal experience when I first delved in to study Humush and opening up the Parsha and reading it, it didn't answer anything for me. It just created a ton of questions as I did not have the comprehension to understand exactly what I was reading. We all need rabbis. And that's why I want to encourage all of you, especially after listening to Rabbi Abraham's as he addresses these questions and the meaning behind tefillin, tzitzitz, and the yarmulke, that you reach out to me at president at torchweb.org so I can get you in contact with him and you can begin having one-on-one study to have a rabbi because we all need one. So please take me up on that offer and stay tuned. As I bring on Rabbi Abrahams and we explore the meaning of these important mitzvot. Welcome to
1: the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwined through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show.
0: Welcome, Rabbi Abrams. I appreciate you being on the show with us. Whenever I have a new guest, especially a torch rabbi on the show, I like to get, give the opportunity to my audience to get to know you a little better. If you would, just start off explaining a little bit about your background, what led you to be an outreach rabbi for the torch organization.
1: First of all, thank you for the opportunity to talk about Judaism together. As far as how I would describe how I came to this point... I would say that for a long time in my life, since I was a teenager, I always wanted to understand the meaning behind the commandments rather than just simply perform them. And any time I would understand the meaning, it would give me more of a a connection to that particular commandment or that particular element of Judaism. So I've always been searching for that. And that led me to look for rabbis either online or in person. I found some rabbis in Israel who directed and channeled that wondering nature into, more, into a very positive and productive approach and to find the meaning behind the commandments in a way that would reinforce the commitment and enhance it rather than distract from it.
0: So was the impact those rabbis had on you? Is that what influenced you to want to do the same for other exactly. Jews? Exactly.
1: And when I find those other Jews and I find the opportunities, which is really what Torch has given me, that opportunity to explore the depths of Judaism with other Jews Is something I only enjoy and
0: appreciate. Great. Well, we appreciate that you do appreciate it because I know every one of your students I've spoken with have uh, greatly appreciated learning with you as well as myself. So let's get into this subject. We're going to talk about tzitzits, yarmulke, and tefillin. So you lead the way, start where you want to start.
1: Well, first of all, I would categorize these three things as accessories. There are accessories that we put on on a daily basis, or for for the example, tzitzits and tefillin, something we put on constantly. And uh, not tzitzit and tefillin, tzitzit and yarmulke. But film is something we put on every day, and ideally we would be wearing it constantly, but for specific, various specific reasons we don't. But these are three things that we would otherwise be wearing constantly. And I want to explore the reason why we put on accessories in general, okay. in life, and then apply that to these specific three that we put on for Judaism. Perfect. And for God. Okay. So just as a jumping off point, the reason anybody would wear an accessory or wear clothing is that they would want to present themselves according to a certain ideal, and they want people to see them as living up to that ideal. They want people to associate certain ideals with them. That's why they would wear these, whatever, whatever it may be. For somebody wearing tank top, might want to associate with other people who wear tank tops and certain characteristics about those people. Or somebody who wears or earrings, nose rings, whatever. Again, it may be to associate with a certain group, Right. And a certain, certain trait, a certain attribute. For these three things, we're going to focus on the exact, the specific attributes of these three accessories. But for Judaism, obviously, it's going to be more of a focus on associating with godly and divine attributes
0: of, of our daily lives. Now, I will say that in my teenage years, thinking like uh, age 14 and 15, where my accessories were a skull earring, a concert shirt from a heavy metal band. Mm -hmm. People immediately knew what I associate with was rebellion. Exactly. Heavy metal music and probably smoking pot. So you're right. It does sort of send out the signal. This is what I'm attaching to is this set of ideas. Right. But obviously, in Judaism, we have things, much more positive ideals we're going after. Exactly. Now, when anybody puts on an accessory, it could be an absolute lie, right? There could be a complete disconnect
1: between how they are in the inside, what they truly are, and what they portray to the world around them. So the idea in Judaism would be to build up this, what we'd call this dissonance, between what you wear and who you are, and try to bring your internal identity, your intrinsic identity, to somewhat match that externality that you're portraying. So let's talk about the elements that you're trying to portray with these three accessories. So I want to first focus on kippah, or Yamka. Okay. Which, as I believe you mentioned earlier is a contraction of two words in Aramaic, Yare Malka, the fear of the king. And that's an element which shows that we are constantly fearful, or let's say, in awe of God. That's the point that I'd like to jump off from. And I wanna guide that idea to something more specific and more practical and extremely practical in today's world, and the struggles that we're all facing in the secular culture. So first of all, it's mentioned a couple of times in the Gemara and in the Talmud. And those two, couple of times that it's mentioned, or a few times that it's mentioned, it's talking about individuals. It's not talking about a community or a nationalistic custom. So I want to sort of put those on the side because, again, if we're talking about individuals, we're talking about something that they exemplified and not necessarily that the community typified. So let's leave those examples alone and talk about it more, how it relates to us today. So before I get into what the yamaka is, I want to talk about Reb Shamshon, Rafal Hirsch, because it's his commentary that I want to focus on, okay. his explanation for the yarmulke. And to understand his, his commentary, his explanation, we first have to understand who this guy was, who Reb Shamshon, Rafal Hirsch was, and the setting that he was a rabbi. In the 1800s, there was a movement called the Haskalah movement, which, of course, we see the extreme effects of today. It was basically an offshoot of the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment in the secular world. As the secular world became generally less prejudiced and more tolerant of different ideas and different cultures, Judaism saw the benefits of that as well. They were less prejudiced. Their neighbors were less intolerant, they're more friendly, more welcoming of them. And up until that point, the Jews had lived in what we call like ghettos today. Um, They were living in little enclaves, completely isolated or relatively isolated from their secular neighbors. Now they, were, they started moving into the bigger cities. They started moving into the, main, the mainstream of secular culture because they were more tolerant of them now. So as Jews are moving into this, they experience this culture shock as they're moving into the mainstream. And suddenly where before they had never experienced secular culture or had always seen it as distant and unrelatable and something unwelcoming, now they were fully caught up in it. And they, they experience this, well, this culture shock. And the, and the response to this culture shock was really the Haskalah movement. The Haskalah movement saw the incompatibility between secular culture and living up to secular, you could say ideals or just secular um, interests, and at the same time also maintaining your Jewish values and your Jewish customs. They saw the incompatibility of this, and they started rationalizing, moving away from those traditional Jewish values. Started rationalizing, moving away from things... Like the desire for the rebuilding of the Third Temple, it began to move away from the rabbinical teachings of the
0: last two thousand years right. or so. So, it, so when the world opened up to the Jewish people, it created a whole new yeah. set of when challenges. When the world
1: opened up, it, the, the Jewish sensitivities began to open up. They became less sensitive to their to their old traditional values
0: and more, and, and now they're more sensitive to the secular culture. It seems like there's like this ebb and flow with that, mm-hmm. where Hashima, influence the other nations to be open to the Jew and allow the Jews to come out of the ghettos in isolation, interact with the world, and sort mm-hmm. of test and see how do they do.
1: I mean, there's a very famous point in history where we can identify where this happened previously, during the times of Hanukkah or Hanukkah. Definitely has happened in our history, and like you said, it ebbs and flows, and sometimes there's a greater degree of influence, and sometimes there's a greater degree of isolation. You're right, it does, it does come and go. But the Haskalah movement was probably the greatest Flashpoint, in that back and forth, and that evolution over time. Okay. It was the biggest, single biggest moment. So this movement, it's hard to identify who exactly led it. There were a lot of different individuals who were a part of it, and they were sort of pulling different directions. They didn't really come to a full consensus. But it started around the time of a rabbi known as Moses Mendelssohn. This rabbi, Rabbi Moses Mendelssohn, had a very large influence on the movement. Even though he didn't himself completely abandon his Jewish values, or even somewhat abandon his Jewish values, but he had a great influence on the rabbis that followed. He had a great influence on this movement. So he is considered by many to be the leader of the what we know today as the Reform conservative movements. But at that point, it's best to identify it as the Haskalah movement. Haskalah in Hebrew translates to intelligence, or an emphasis on intelligence, on intellectualization of, of Jewish values. Because gotcha. they wanted to find a rational approach to evolving or force, kind of force-evolving their old Jewish values to a more modern, more secular
0: setting. They wanted to find a way to make it mold and fit with the secular world around them. Exactly.
1: Or are fully, fully assimilated. We see people who are
0: trying to guide that assimilation in
1: certain directions. That right. reform movement and the conservative movement are still alive today, and they're still very powerful and very influential. So, so Rabbi Hirsch basically was a rabbi during this period of time. And as he saw this great migration of Jews from the shtetl, as it's called, or mm-hmm. the little Jewish enclaves, to the massive cities, he didn't feel the need to resist it. Instead, he decided to join it. He himself moved to the cities. He found ways to educate himself in the secular sciences the world was, was exploring at that time. And he wanted to be a rabbi for the Jews in the big city, which he did very successfully. And his influence today is, if anything, maybe even greater than his influence was at the time. Because a very large section of the modern Orthodox community are trying to live up to his values as they explore the secular culture, they go out into the secular world, they join. They find secular jobs and secular, open secular businesses, and they're pretty much enmeshed in the secular world, but they maintain their Jewish values and their Jewish traditions and their religious observance. So his influence today is, is pretty exceptional. But this provides really good context for his understanding of what the Yamaka of the Kīpā does. So he says like this. He says that as human beings, we often like to think of ourselves, you can call it a sense of haughtiness or a conce- or a self-conceit, Well, we like to think of our intelligence as being greater than it actually is. We like to over we like to overestimate our own intelligence as human beings. That's just a natural tendency of human beings to overestimate okay. their intelligence. So he said that this could lead, as we saw it did during the Haskalah movement, and it still does today, this could lead to Jews thinking that they know better than God. Or they know better than the rabbis of thousands of years going all the way back to the, to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. They know better than them and they can, they can interpret Judaism however they like. He says that is exactly what the Yamaka is trying to ameliorate. And it's very simple. If you understand what your intelligence looks like in the face of God, if you understand what it really looks like compared to God's intelligence, compared to the rabbis of previous generations, you would be embarrassed. You would be completely ashamed, utterly ashamed of your intelligence. You would want to cover it up. So right. he's saying that is what are covering our heads. That's the purpose of covering our heads, is to cover up our intelligence because we are ashamed of it. We recognize that there are far greater forms of intelligence that are guiding us and instructing us than what our own minds can come up with. Right. And that is okay. why we put on a yarmulke every single day and we wear just about in every single scenario. Because no matter where we walk in life, we have to recognize that our mind is not nearly up to the level and up to the intellectual capacity and, and capability of God and of the rabbis that are that are guiding us and leading us.
0: One of the early concepts I learned before I even met any rabbis when I was studying uh, I was going through some curriculum at the Aish website was this idea that didn't make sense to me at the moment but makes total sense to me or, or began to make a lot of sense to me over time and that was we tend to think that the sophistication and intellectual advancement has been increasing since the time of the giving of Torah Exactly, that man's more advanced or more sophisticated and the reality is is that while there's allowed, God has allowed us to discover how the world works, and we've been able to build on those ideas that we've learned, the, the reality is the level of spirituality has been in total decline, and that's attached to our intellectual ability, and it's actually been just the opposite.
1: Exactly. That is precisely the point of the Amica. It's to recognize that we, not, we are like monkeys in the face of God. We know nothing. We are literally twiddling our thumbs compared to God's almighty almighty wisdom we'd be no nothing right it's essentially that idea and if we can go all the way back to when god spoke directly to the jews spoke directly to those who stood at mount sinai we are we are like nothing to the, compared to them intellectually what empowers us see, many people think that this this would only serve to whatever the opposite of empower is it would only serve to mitigate our abilities today that's not really true our challenges are still as great, if not even greater, than the, what they faced back then. Because our challenges are greater, that only means we have more ability and more opportunity to
0: overcome the challenges that are given to us. What equips us to our, for our more difficult challenges today are what they gave us, or exactly. what the yeah. previous generations equipped us with. Okay.
1: Instead of looking at your direct capabilities, what empowers you, look at what challenges you. That's what empowers you. The challenges you are able to overcome compared to the challenges others are able to overcome, that is what truly empowers an individual. With that in mind, that's talking about the yamaka. When you put it on every single day, when you put on this keeper, when you cover your head, when you walk around in front of other people, as you mentioned, when you wear it in a business meeting, you feel a sense of humility. And, and when you are prepared to take the lead on something, when you're prepared to use your intellect to guide others, at no point will you think that your intellect is greater than God's. And that with your wisdom, you can come up with a better solution than God came up with. So when a person wants to assimilate, when they want to join the secular culture, and they want to throw off the, um, the obligations that God's Torah gives them, the first thing they'll have to do is take off that yarmulke. They'll have to take off the head covering. Because as long as they're wearing it, they cannot, you cannot rationalize your actions as long as you're still wearing your yarmulke. How can you defy God's commandments? How can you say that, God, you're wrong in this instant without taking off your yarmulke first? To do both at the same time, to have a yarmulke and to assimilate and to disregard God's commandments would be
0: impossible. It would be completely dissonant. Okay. And this is a different perspective than what I was saying. What I was saying it was a way to having a sense of fear, which is sort of a lower level closeness to God. Right. That you are, you know, he controls everything. But there's a a higher level, which is a a love of God. I think that's what this is getting to. It's just recognizing infinity of his intelligence. Exactly. And we have the Torah to guide our decision making. And we should be left to our own devices. The reason he gave us Torah is he didn't want to leave us to our own devices because our reasons can take us awry often.
1: Exactly. And as we're going to see... Like I mentioned, with challenges in general, that they empower us. It's our challenges that we face today that empowers us. We'll see with Phil and also that there's a much more positive approach we could take to connecting to God. This is just, as you say, it's a higher level, but perhaps it's still not the highest and the most intimate connection we can take. And we're going to build up a little bit.
0: Thank you for listening to part one of Accessorizing the External to Change the Internal with Rabbi Abraham's. Stay tuned for the upcoming release of Part 2.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at